I'm Alex Green. Welcome to Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. the music of the Bye Bye Blackbirds, and the singer of that band, Bradley Scott, is my guest today here on the podcast. Now, let me tell you a little bit about the Bye Bye Blackbirds. They've been around since about 2005, and they're based out of Oakland, California. Their name does indeed come from the 1926 jazz standard, so in case you were making associations like that, you were right on the mark. Uh, Their first EP was the Honeymoon EP. It was produced by Bill Swan of Beulah, and that got things started. From there, there was another EP, and since then, there have been four albums, the newest one being Take Out the Poison, which just came out a few months ago. Now, the Bye Bye Blackbirds are one of the best-loved bands around in the Bay Area, and they know how to stay busy. They've recorded songs with Dr. Frank of the Mr. T Experience and author Jonathan Levham. Also, they've shared bills with UMI, Tommy Keen, and Scott Miller of Game Theory and the Loud Family. Now, Bradley Scott is the kind of guy you want to talk to all day. He knows his stuff. Whether it's obscure, jangly pop bands from New Zealand or the poetry of Wallace Stevens, Bradley Scott knows what he's talking about. And he is truly one of the nicest guys around. He's erudite. He's smart. He's eloquent. He's thoughtful. And uh, most of all, he's gracious and he's humble. I like this guy. I've known him for a while. And it was really good to sit down and talk to him about his new album, Take Out the Poison, which I think is the Bye Bye Blackbird's best album yet. And by the way... That's not an easy pick because every album they've done is fantastic. So I sat down with Bradley and we broke it all down. Bradley Scott is one of the last great gentlemen of pop music. But don't take my word for it. Have a listen for yourself. This is my conversation with Bradley Scott of the Bye Bye Blackbirds here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. It was funny. I was actually thinking about that phenomenon recently of – and I don't necessarily have a, an explanation for this phenomenon, but there are certain artists who I will listen to absolutely everything by for as long as they do anything. And even if I know that, you know, there's something about it that's compromised or it's gone downhill to my own standards or whatever, I'll still, there's something about them that makes me want to check in with everything and look for things of interest. And then there are other artists who I also love who I'm outrageously picky about and will not put up with anything less than, 
you know, certain specific requirements or whatever on my part. And, and uh, I don't really have an explanation for why that is, but there are just, there, there are some artists like I'll listen to everything. And then there's something like, I only want to hear the things that I'm very specifically after, but I would say I love that artist as much. There's just, it's just a different way of like processing their work or something about their work that creates this different listening phenomenon for me. Um, but another band that fits in this category for me is the Kinks, which is as you get older, you realize that more and more and more of their stuff is good. Like when you're young, you're like, I only like this Kinks. And then you get a little bit older, you're like, okay, I'll go a few more years. You know, okay, maybe this album. All right, maybe this period. And then you hit a certain point, you're like, you know what? There's, there's like maybe two or three bad Kinks records. <laughs> you really right. you have to listen to everything, you know. And and I guess Costello kind of fits in that for me. Maybe he has more stuff that I don't want to hear, but it seems like if I, if there's a Costello I don't like, it's it's more my fault than his. You know, like if I go back to it later, I'll be like, oh, you were right. <laughs> right, right. I think you know? I feel like when we're in our when our you know a little bit older, we'll we'll say, oh, North is a great album. You know, I, but I feel like I'm not right. there yet. And, and I wonder sometimes if it's the same thing with literature, where as you, you know, there are some, there are some books that are just meant to be read when you're 17. Um, right. You know, but when you're, when you're 25 or 26, they take on a different meaning. And then when you get older, you know, it, it even changes even more. And sometimes it may not even speak to you anymore. Um, but like, so someone like Kerouac, who I loved when I was 21, I don't. I don't return to Kerouac. He doesn't speak to me in the same way that uh, that I needed when I was twenty one. I don't. I don't need that anymore. Um, but yeah, you know, he, in a way, Kerouac's the perfect example of that. And although what's funny is, if you know, in your late thirties, early forties, or whatever, if you go back and read Doctor Sachs, all of a sudden you're like, oh wow, this is actually maybe the coolest thing you've read. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, like that book, which was you know such a young sort of in some way experimental thing on his part that's so different from his other stuff that has aged better than a lot of his other stuff. Um, it's, that's a phenomenon that I'm curious about too, but no, you're right. And, and in music, there are those people like I think, and maybe it's this, there are the people that are speaking specifically to youth. And then there are the people who are using youthful experience to explore a greater life you know like ray davies has always been you know like an old soul to a certain extent so even if he was talking about adolescent experiences the experiences of a young man in the 60s or whatever he's going to talk about them in such a way that they're going to resonate with you later you know you're going to connect with that self and maybe that's not really the case with you know with some of his peers that are fine you know that were and then capture a moment that's, that's cool but you're not going to grow with that and then wonder, wow, I wonder what Ray Davies has to say in 1977 or 1984. Because <laughs> it turns out, even though there are, you know, maybe he didn't make a record as great as Arthur or something again, he still has something interesting to say that's going to resonate with you and he's going to do it in a somewhat interesting way. And so you just keep coming back and the older you get, the more you realize, oh, this is a life's work. This isn't just he was great when he was 20. This is something that he keeps playing with and coming back to. Maybe a life's work also matches a life lived. So in other words, like maybe in 25 years, my favorite Dylan album will be Time Out of Mind and I won't, I won't feel the same way about Blood on the Tracks as I did when I was, you know, 21, 22. I mean, maybe there's something to be said about an artist who lives a long time and has, you know, a pretty deep oeuvre where, you know, the early work 
may not speak to you the later you live as much as it did. Does that make sense? It does. It does. And I think part of that is that a lot of these artists that we're thinking of that have this longevity, um, not just, you know, doing it for a long time, but doing it in an interesting way for a long time, um, don't, you know, don't spend a whole lot of time on their past, you know, like, I mean, Dylan is, is an obvious example. You know, he's, if he plays an old song, it's probably in an unrecognizable form. He's really, whatever he's doing now is what he's most interested in. Um, and if he decides to go back for some reason, he's going to do it in a way that's, you know, relevant to what he's doing right now. Um, Ray Davies, for all of his young success and, and hits that he, you know, revisits and plays or whatever, he's always been one of those artists who feels very much in the present and isn't necessarily thinking, oh, man, what do I have to do to please a Kinks fan, you know, or or what should I do that would, you know, make someone who likes Village Green like my new record, you know, he just never has done that. Um, so I, that combined with people, I don't know if it's luck or if it's um, just the way people sort of hone their talent. Some people are good for a long time and some people just do it for a long time but aren't good for a long time, <laughs> you know. Uh, like I, I, you know, not to be harsh, but I, I, I can't remember the last time that I made it all the way through a Neil Young record. Um, while at the same time, I love the fact that he's just relentlessly in the present, you know, like he's just constantly coming up with new things he wants to talk about or whatever. I just sort of feel like musically there's nothing super rewarding about how he's doing it. Um, but I, I'm sort of just glad he's doing it. You know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I wonder if this is a good argument for um, living a long artistic life. Cause I mean, Kerouac is a good example of a guy who did one thing really, really well. And then he sort of just kept right. doing it into the ground and he died fairly young. Um, but you put 30 more years on Jack Kerouac's life and he might've returned to that sort of first pastoral novel he had done. So in, in musical terms, um, there's something to be said for having a discography that, you know, that encompasses four decades. Um, you know, you can really see the growth in an artist and there's different places for you to go as you get older, which I think is kind of cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's true. I also think there's just, there's so many other factors that are peripheral to the artist at work too. There's, there's the context in which the work appears. There's, you know, how, how it fits in with sort of whatever the social, you know, scene is around them, how the industry responds to it. Does it sell? Does it not sell? Um, you know, there's like all these other weird things that color how, you know, a work of art like that enters into, you know, the general public consciousness, you know? So, I mean, like someone like John Cale, you know, has made all of his records, you know, pretty much sound like the era in which they're made in. So like his 1985 record's going to sound like 1985 and his, you know, 2010 record's going to sound like 2010. And there are times when those records would come out that it was just like, no, this is not the moment in time when <laughs> people want to hear what John Cale has to do. But then you go back to it a decade later and you're like, well, he was being awesome, you know, in his own way. Like he found his own path through that. And, but because of the time that it came out, maybe because of how you felt about John Cale at the time that it came out, or maybe because of other musical movements that made that sound irrelevant somehow, you know, like maybe it came out in the middle of, 
you know, the early 90s when nothing sounded like that. So you're like, oh, I'll listen to that. I'm going to listen to this other stuff that's going on. But then, you know, time clears all that stuff away and all you're left with are, are these, you know, a book or a record or a poem or something. And then you, you know, well, poems are a little bit different. I think they're, they're always present. They're always more present as works than, I mean, they, they are in a context, but uh, it's different than listening to a record or, or reading a novel or something like that. But, you know, context gets cleared away a little bit and then you can see it as part of a body of work as opposed to an album that just stuck out weird to you at the time or that you just weren't in the mood for or weren't ready for. It makes me think that art is more powerful than time. Yeah, I mean, I'll I'll, I'll agree with it, but let you say it because I haven't thought about it too thoroughly. (laughs) Well, um, I I mean, here's here's what I mean by that. I mean that, like, for example, uh, take a record like uh, that gets sort of critically reviled when it comes out uh, for whatever mm -hmm. reason, like maybe maybe because it sounds too grounded in the time or maybe it's too artistically um, ahead of what's going on or behind what's going on. When when the decades clear away uh, and people kind of there's so many albums that get rediscovered um, or so many bands like even a band like Big Star who really wasn't appreciated the way that they're appreciated now they weren't really appreciated mm-hmm. that way then right um, yep. so if the art gets made even if it's thirty years uh, ahead of itself people will come back around if it's if it's good strong art. And I think that it will outlast time. In other words, people will be able to find it 30, 40, 50 years. Look at, you know, painters who painted and, and died before they could sell a painting. There's many examples of that. Um, yeah. So maybe <laughs> I'm putting a lot, of res- a lot of responsibility on art. But I think that art in many ways is more powerful than, than time. Yeah. No, I, I mean, based on that description, I, that's exactly how I feel about it. And I, and I think that... As a listener, you can take that and make that sort of your strategy for listening. You know, like I think, um, I think a lot of us get hung up on things that I was referencing before, the peripheral things that accompany listening and sometimes forget to just listen and let the music and lyrics and sounds and all that kind of stuff do their job and affect you. Um, you know, like, uh, there's always sort of that. There's this conversation that's like a, the beginning of a conversation in a record store that you'll hear all the time, which is you'll say, "Hey, have you ever heard of this band?" And someone will say, "No, where are they from?" <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's sort of funny. Like, and I understand, like, especially coming out of sort of the '80s college radio phenomenon in particular, like there there were regional sounds. You know, so if someone said, "Hey, these guys are from Athens, Georgia, or they're from you know Seattle, Washington, or whatever," you're gonna you're gonna start making connections in your head, but you actually haven't listened to it. You know, and that's like the thing that's like it's a funny question because you're immediately trying to sort of build your opinion about something or know something about it before you've heard it, and placing the time, putting it in a place, giving it all these kind of different kinds of context, maybe telling a story. Oh, it's about, it's a breakup record or it's, uh, you know, it was written after his father died or whatever. Like all of these kinds of things, really you don't need to know any of that stuff. And if you get too hung up on that stuff, you may not actually end up listening to it, like for whatever it's going to do in the space and time that you're going to listen to it. Um, And so I think a lot of artists get sort of lost in a, in a funny way that way, you know, like 
they're a genre band, they're a garage rock band or whatever. And so you forget, oh man, this guy's actually an exceptional songwriter. And the actual melodies and words and structures that he uses are bigger than the genre he's potentially working in or she's working in. Um, so I think that, you know, that being bigger than time concept is partly because is partly because of that, because the work does its job once you've cleared away the baggage that kind that came with it or that was attached to it by somebody else. Um, you know, like I mean, we're right now we're in this process of because of the latest, you know, Bob Dylan bootleg reissue thing, people are going back and listening to Slow Train Coming and like listening to all this live gospel stuff that he did. And it's doing its own work now, you know, because we're not, you know, protesting in front of the war field or whatever. People aren't throwing tomatoes at him or, you know, like all of these things that his work has gone through at various times. At some point, years later, you're just like, no, this is just part of his whole big process, you know, in the collective works of this guy. This is this is a chapter, and not every single chapter is worth paying attention to as we keep discovering. They're not all equal, but they're all valuable and they all are part of this like long train of thought that is really fascinating well i also wonder sometimes if so biography can sometimes get in the way you know i mean right you take someone like wallace stevens who um was an amazing poet who sold insurance i mean right not not a sexy biographical (laughs) description (laughs) right like like tell me more about this wallace stevens guy well he sells insurance and you're sort of like, oh, uh, you wanted something more daring and something more wild, but that's not what you were going to get. He was, a guy, he was rich during the Depression. You know, like, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, Stevens is, is, I mean, he's, to me, one of the most fascinating literary figures in American history because, I mean, what the, the first book is, he's like 43 or something, right, when he first publishes. It's right. not even like he was a young, wild poet who, you know, had this other adult life, he had already, you know, he was already this established professional um, before he even published. So, you know, I think that's a perfect example of, well, the work is going to do all the work. Like, if you're looking for a lifestyle poet, and there, and we, you and I could probably come up with, you know, half a dozen of those, and some of them are fine poets, but their work is inextricable from a lifestyle that you, that someone wants to feel a part of or emulate. And, you know, I mean, you know, no offense to people who really like to sell insurance, but that's not what we're coming to Wallace Stevens for. Like, I want to feel like I'm at the desk, you know, right. selling insurance. <laughs> right. But, you know, right. It's, it's just the work. And, and so that's the benefit of somebody like that, where someone else who lives like a crazy life, that biography is, is, is powerful, you know. And that's, I guess, kind of getting back to what I was thinking, like, oh, this is the breakup record. Like, well, is it a good record? Is it a record that you relate to? What about it do you like? Not, I want to feel like I'm connected to this person's emotional experience vicariously. It's like, no, does the work actually make you feel that? Does it actually take you to that feeling in a way that's the work itself and not just the fact that you know ahead of time what it's about? You know, that's that's something I'm fascinated by um, because so much judgment is made ahead of time, well, you know, on records and things like that. I mean, that that being said, when people ask you about the Bye Bye Blackbirds and about uh, certain songs and what they're about, are you hesitant to reveal too much? So are you really careful in your answers, or what's your take on that? Um, I, 
No, I'm not hesitant, in part because I, maybe it's because the way that I write, but I don't necessarily have, like, a, a straight-up answer. Like, the answers that I have to those questions are answers I've discovered both through the process of writing it and listening to it. So um, I sort of feel like I'm in the same same boat as someone who asked that question. Like, like when I'm working on a song, I don't necessarily say, oh, this song is about exactly this. I'm sort of discovering it and think, oh, you know, these are the lines that worked for me. This is the feel I was going for. Yeah, this really, you know, resonates with this experience or this idea. So I feel like I'm going through that, the same process that I would, if I was listening to a record, I do with my own to a certain extent. So, you know, if someone was to ask me about a specific song or a record, I could say, well, I think, you know, this is what it kind of feels like for me. And that that can change, too. You know, like there are definitely songs that felt one way for a while and feel differently now. Um, but I don't feel like I'm, or at least I'm attempting to not sell it as here's what this song is about. You know, I, I'm sort of trying at least to relate to the question more than the answer, you know, like, well, this was kind of how it felt to me when I, you know, play it or something like that. I, I feel like that's not putting too much on top of it. Maybe I do the way I do because my songs are not generally super specific place and time songs, you know, like I don't have a song about one specific thing that happened on a specific day. And by telling you that it is now permanently attached to this place and time, like it, they, it really is much more, I guess, I don't know. I don't want to use the word impressionistic, but I will. It's much more a series of kind of moods and ideas and images and things that I try to make cohere and interesting and, and whatever. So, you know, there isn't necessarily a code that I can hand down that's going to forever, you know, like tell you who you're so vain is about, you know, right. <laughs> it's not going to get to that point. <laughs> Well, um, let's talk about Take Out the Poison, which is just a fantastic record. And as I said, it's one of my favorites of the year. Um, when I when I reviewed it um, a month or two ago, I was remarking that it was a very confident sounding record. And um, I've seen that written other places as well. Um, your response to that was, you know, that you've always been a confident band, which I which I would agree with as well. So what what am I what am I hearing? In other words, what is it that I'm labeling confidence? Because um, I feel like I'm labeling it the wrong way. But what exactly do you think is happening on the new record that's making people respond in that way? What are they hearing? That's a really good question. Um, I mean, part of it is, you know, just getting getting better. <laughs> you know, the knowledge that kind of sounds. Uh, I mean, you, you can be confident and not, you know, achieve what you're after. Um, and I think we've always been confident, but we've also been getting better at things. So part of it is just, you know, some of the same ideas that we've tried in the past, but this time, you know, nailing them a little bit better. Um, yeah, I have, I have thought about that in part because it, it was not like a, a, a record that I felt particularly like cocky about while making. Like I, there were, I had a lot of, questions and a lot of concerns about it while we were making and a lot of, you know, kind of hesitancy. Um, so the fact that it sort of kind of ended up being executed in this way that has, that people are responding to, like you say, you know, saying, like, oh, yeah, this is much more confident than previous records. It didn't feel like that making it. And yet I also kind of know 
again, from that listener standpoint, like what they mean. But yeah, it's a, that's a tough question to, to answer from the inside. I mean, in a way, I think the fact that people are saying that um, suggests that, you know, that their perspective isn't colored by the process of making it. You know, they're hearing something that I might not be able to hear because I'm hearing these incremental sort of changes over the course of time with, with making records and, and playing the band. What about from a production standpoint, what what were the choices that you made in the studio for Take Out the Poison? Because I think it's one of the, you know, to me, the production is just remarkably good. And, um, you know, like with Earl Grey or with uh, Duet, it's there's it's such a crisp album. And I think that might be mm-hmm. one of the clues to tr- sort of figuring this thing out um, is just how crisp and how direct um, the album sounds. That's a really good point. I, and I think, I think you've, maybe hit on that sort of confidence angle in, in just to the sonic personality of it. And a lot of that has to do with um, working with this guy, Scott Evans. Um, and it, I, I've always had this sort of thing in recording like certain sonic pursuits that I wanted to go or certain directions I wanted to go sonically. And it's always been a little bit of a struggle, even though we've worked with people that I've loved and have gotten cool results in some ways. Um, Scott has such a different perspective and such a different background. And I was so confident that it was going to work. You know, he doesn't make pop records very often. He, he's, he comes from like a heavy music background. He makes stuff that's like, like kind of post-hardcore records, um, metal records, um, kind of artsy, dark, heavy stuff is his, that's, you know, that's what his name is known for in the industry. Um, but there's so much about how he works and about his sort of ear for sonics that I just thought, oh, this is going to be a really great combination. Um, and it, that really paid off. Like, I really feel like the way he captured sounds, the way we communicated about what kind of sounds we wanted. Um, and I think that background that he comes from those kinds of records are such performance-oriented records. They're not necessarily about how many studio tricks you can layer, or it's a very different sort of approach than coming out of, you know, this 50-some years of Beatle thinking where you're a studio artist and you're, like, layering and layering and layering and you're pursuing echoes and all these kind of other things that are going to create this patchwork. Um, whereas coming out of, you know, punk and hardcore and metal it's about the sonic personality of, of the band or the performers and capturing that as best as you can and then putting it in a reproducible form that's you know, not some crazy volume that is going to blow your head off, but it's something you can listen to on you know, headphones or whatever. And that's a, that's a different kind of thinking about sound. And I really like that. I like that performance-oriented sonic personality. It's, it's engineering with that kind of thing in mind, not how do these pieces get put together later, but how does this all fit together as a performing unit? And the result of that, I think, is what you're talking about, which is this result, clarity of sound. Um, the performance is the performance. It's, it's real. It's what happened in the room. Um, and that's, again, that sort of confident, you know, crisp, punchy sound. And uh, so I think just working with Scott Evans was a huge part of that step up um, for us. You know, it was interesting. I can think of, 
you know, producers that would be perfect for you. I think Don Dixon, I think Mitch Easter, and I don't think you'd argue with me, but I do think that this is a really interesting moment for our listeners because those of them who are in bands and um, even, even from a dating perspective that sometimes it's good to get an opposite of, of who you are. Um, because I think, you know, getting Scott brought an element out in the, in the birds that I really love. And, and I, it's that directness of the sound I really responded to. And I think it really, um, it, it gave the band a little more fire, um, than I was mm-hmm. expecting. And it was really cool. And so, but I wonder if you had gotten Mitch Easter, um, that wouldn't have been there though. I love Mitch Easter. And I wonder if, if maybe the secret here is to actually find somebody who is not in your wheelhouse to bring out elements that you wouldn't have brought out. Yeah. I, and I, again, I think it's a lot of it for me at least was like, I, we, we work really hard on arrangements. We know what we play like, we know what we sound like. We're not trying to build that later. Um, what we want is we want that captured so that it feels the way it does live, so that the actual sort of feeling of each instrumentalist is live. And then, you know, we can add details to, you know, whatever. I mean, it's obviously there's plenty of overdubs and things going on. But uh, being more performance-oriented and less constructing an album-oriented, you know, I think for me it was something that I had pursued with other people who were maybe not as adept at that as Scott is. And when I was focused more on engineering and sound and less on how albums were constructed, that's, you know, and, and I had worked with Scott in like a side project, so I kind of knew his personality and things too. There were, you know, personal aspects to it as well. But it was really just like, well, what do I want each thing to sound like? And who's good at that? Who's good at capturing these kinds of sounds? Not, hey, I love this, you know, pop record that Mitch Easter produced, which sounds great, but I don't need to sound like that. I know what this band sounds like. I want to sound like this. Who's the engineer who can do that, you know? And, and um, you know, like I said, a lot of the engineers that come out of what I think of as kind of hardcore, post-hardcore metal, they're, they're very much attuned to capturing sounds, organic sounds, sounds in the room performances, and not recreating the sounds of pop records that they love.
how soon did you know that Scott was your guy? In other words, when you guys started working together, was it fairly instant in terms of, oh, this is pretty cool? Uh, did you know right away that this was a good match for the birds? Yeah, yeah, I did. And it, it's partly because the, the project that I had done with him before um, was, uh, it was actually, it was a band called Roman Cities. And it was a bunch of people from, from different bands. And the songs were written by the bass player who had um, had never written like pop kind of songs before. He just really wanted to make like a pop record, something that was kind of fun and um kind of new wavy and a little 80s at times or whatever. He just had this whole kind of fun idea for it. And so I played guitar for that. And and, um, and he also comes from a, you know, kind of punk and hardcore background and stuff too. So Scott's his guy. They were in a band together. They worked together. So we just did it with Scott and just doing this little side project thing. Um, just the, the way he worked, the way his ears were, I could just tell, like, oh, God, this guy's capturing sounds the way I like sounds to be captured. His his working process is really, like, methodical in the way that felt comfortable for me. Um, but he also, and, and this was important, and this really carried over to the Blackbirds record for me, he also really um, challenged me in a lot of ways. Like, you know, I would have an instinctive thing, like, oh, okay, this is the part where I overdub this and I do this and I do this. And he would always, he would stop me and be like, well, it doesn't really need that, does it? Oh, I don't know. I just kind of do that. Like, maybe it doesn't need that. And what I realized is a lot of things that I had been doing in the past were trying to create sonically something that Scott was getting right away. You know, like maybe I was using two or three guitar overdubs to try to create this kind of guitar picture that I wanted. But really what I just needed to do was to get that in the room and Scott would capture it right and mix it right and it would do the work. So I think he was challenging a lot of my instincts. It had sort of become crutches. And uh, I liked that, you know, and there are definitely, it's funny, there, I can hear on the record, there are t the arguments that I won and the arguments that I lost. And I think they both work really well. Um, but it was fun to have that check, you know, that I didn't just do uh, everything that I always do. But there were times when I stopped myself because Scott had this totally different take. And he was like, no, 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 you don't need to do that. This is doing it. This is fine. This is cool. This is working. And, and then there were other times I was like, no, it's going to have glockenspiel or whatever. It's gonna, whatever I throw <laughs> at it, you know, and I would win that argument. But um, that was helpful, too. And, again, maybe getting back to what you said about, working outside of the comfort zones of your genre, working with different kinds of people, that's something that you're going to get. You're going to get someone who just says, why do you do that? You don't need to do that. And and that might just be what you need to hear to clear away something on the record and, and make it more impactful and make it work in a, in a way that's, that you hadn't expected. I love what you said about hearing your wins and losses uh, on the album. When you listen to it, um, can you listen to it without the editorial hat on? Can you listen to it as a as a freestanding experience, or are you too in it to? Because you know some actors don't watch their own movies, um, you know, and I, which I which I certainly understand. Are you able to listen to Take Out the Poison, for example, and and not be critical of of the work, or uh, how do you listen to your own music? Uh, the answer is no. I mean, it's just there's just too many. You know, like, oh, man, that, that note is bomb, you know, or like, oh, 
yeah, maybe we should, really should have spent done one more pass on that or something. Like it's just impossible to to do that. But I, I and I, I'm, I'm if, as critical as I can be. I am, I think, fundamentally glass half full about it. You know, like I I focus on the the things that went well and and the things that I'm happy with. Um, and also, I guess you know the sort of realistic sense of of you know we have limited money, we have limited time. We're just we're doing as much as we can with with the resources we have, um, and that you know sometimes that's a disappointment feeling. You're just like, oh man, we'd only had another day. But on the other hand, it's like, wow, we didn't have another day, and look what we did. You know, so um, yeah, I really can't get outside of the the editorial thing, but I can enjoy it. You know, and I can. And the, I think the, you know, and this is true of all the records, the songs where you really just sort of felt like you, you'd nailed it, you really got, you know, what you were after. Um, those songs, especially over time, become songs that I can hear almost like I'm listening to another artist, where I really do lose the editorial part of it, and I really do just sort of enjoy it. And part of it is just knowing that I got as close as I could to, to what I was after. So... Um, so it, once you're through the process of having to listen to it a million times for technical reasons, there's a softening, and then I can enjoy listening to it. And um, not that I do often, but when I do, it's like, oh, it's, it's a fun thing to do, even if I can hear the mistakes and even if I can hear, you know, things that I wish I'd done differently. Are you hard on yourself, do you find? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um yeah. Yeah, especially I think in the recording stage, because uh, for whatever reason, and I I know people who are such perfectionists that like they'll put out you know one record every ten years and they'll just keep redoing things and and really 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 not letting it go until they're totally happy with it. And I can't do that. I just I really just have to kind of get things out, um, and I like to capture them and do the best I can and then put them out and then move on to the next thing kind of feeling, even if the time seems longer than that. But um, So it's, it's like a I kind of torture myself a little bit because there's a part of me that really wants to spend every day in the studio perfecting something and getting it exactly the way that I know it can be. Um, and that's in competition with the part of me that just wants to get it done and get it out and, and let it be what it is. Um, so I'm sort of hard on myself in a way that's kind of not fair because I'm put myself in that situation. <laughs> I get that. I mean, I actually feel, I mean, when I'm doing readings, I will change words when I'm, when I'm reading. Um, when, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'm convinced that like when someone like George Orwell for the 50th anniversary of 1984 or, or Animal Farm or whatever it was said, oh, here's the lost chapter. I'm convinced there was no lost chapter. He was just re- you know, taking another pass at, at his book. Yeah. Um, and I think, yeah. and there's nothing wrong with that, but I think that for artists, sometimes, you know, you, in many ways, the bar tab is always open. It never, you never can mm-hmm. stop the clock. You, you never can say, um, you know, I'm satisfied. That's that one we'll leave alone. If given a chance to tinker with anything, <laughs> I think, I yeah. think that most artists will, um, which is the Absolutely. great, right? No, I, and I, I think that this, like, in some ways, poetry, um, and rock and roll have, as as far as what I think of as arts 
the, the great arts have in common um, is that sense that there's a performance aspect to it that you're going to, you know, if you're reading the poem 50 times, there's no way you're, you're going to read it exactly the same every time, or you shouldn't, you know, even if it's just sort of the, 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 the musical aspect of it, you know, a little faster, a little slower, how you want to read the line breaks or something like that. You're going to, you're going to want to mess with it. And, you know, these, the songs that we record, we play live and they change, you know, and sometimes they change dramatically. Um, you know, I've even considered and may actually do this on, on the next record, like re-recording a couple of old songs, which I, I was always like totally opposed to when bands would do that, but you know, screw it. Um, because they, they just have a totally different life, you know, live, and, and they just change and change and change, and next thing you know, they have this whole other personality that's really, really cool, and you're like, oh, okay, great. Well, now, oh, this has nothing to do with this recorded version that is the only other document of this, you know. Um, so, yeah, I think that tinkering sort of aspect is, that's the, the benefit, I guess, is if you make a record that isn't exactly what you want, at least you can play it live and try to, like, keep it alive and keep, you know, pushing it in directions and, and getting it to where you want it. Yeah, I mean, I just saw that Echo and the Bunnymen have a new album coming out, and the new album is old songs reworked. And, um, right. you know, a lot, a lot of these songs, they, as you get older, different ideas might occur to you about those songs that you wrote when you were younger. And so why not give them another pass and give them another another um, iteration where they can sort of like almost mm -hmm. become something else. Yeah, yeah, and there, I think you know, there are, there are examples of that working well. You know, we mentioned John Cale earlier, and, and um, his reworking of music for a new society was totally fascinating. You know, and the fact that it, it came out with the reissue of the original album was kind of fun. You know, you could go back and forth, and and um, you know, and he really, of course, massively reworked things and. That's just his, his nature. Um, I was telling a friend or playing for a friend the other day the the reissue of, of uh, Prefab Sprout's Steve McQueen that has this disc of Patty McLoon in like whatever, 2004, playing acoustic versions of those songs is phenomenal. Like just to hear what this, you know, this 20 years later, how does, how does Patty treat those songs? You know, how is it different for him now? Um, yeah, that's that's a totally fascinating thing, and and really in keeping with, I guess, again, that sort of poetic intent of, I've, you know, I've created this moment or this mechanism for communicating a moment, which means that every time I revisit it as its creator, it's going to be different, and I'm going to approach it differently, and and if you ask me 50 years later, I'm going to try to tweak it, <laughs> and you may have to stop me, you know. It makes me uh... like I remember, Sorry. I remember when um, there was a many, many years ago about reissuing um, Game Theory, Lolita Nation. This is long before the, the Omnivore reissues were even on the radar. Um, and and Scott was adamant that he was going to re-record all his lead vocals and remix the entire thing. Like, that was part of the thing for him. He's like, no, this record's not coming back out unless I can go back and redo all this stuff. And I, I was secretly, like, one of the people who thought that was kind of a cool idea, and I was totally into it. But almost every other, you know, Game Theory fan in the world would, would have been just absolutely horrified, and it would have totally been, you know, like, oh, man, you know, I just want the record I know back. But I totally know where Scott was coming from, and he was a better singer, so he he really, it would have been awesome, <laughs> but it wouldn't have, I guess it gets us back to the baggage of, of you know, that records acquire at certain times and places, people would not have been happy. They would not have been satisfied. It would not have been held up as the equivalent. 
equivalent of the original 1987 version, um, even though I think it probably would have been better. But yeah. well, I mean, and at the and Scott was no longer the 1987 version of himself, and just like right, like we we all change, right. and so it makes me think that you know songs are poetry they're like living organisms that can continually be <laughs> fed in different ways and they can get bigger and smaller in different ways mm-hmm. yep yep i think that's true and i think maybe that has something to do with those artists we're talking about that have longevity and and part of the longevity is um the way they're work at various stages resonates with the work at other stages. Like you feel like you're getting in touch with their process, not just um, a recreation of, of an idea over and over and over again, but it's like a living thing for them. The whole career is. Um, and if they're not present with a certain part of it, it's because that's not where they are. But if they go back to it, you know that they're even, you know. Yeah, I mean, sometimes you can hear the B-sides of the album, you know, I get why those were the B-sides. Those are cool, uh, you know, songs from the sessions, but it was smart probably not to put them on the record. In the case of Take Out the Poison, were there songs that you didn't include that you were sort of wrestling with? Uh, no. I think, I think, and, and that's rarely the case with me that I have extras. I think there's only, like, two or three songs over the last three records that didn't make it on the record. I just don't, I'm not prolific enough, so... Um, if it's finished, it's going on the record. I guess it's <laughs> the, the general philosophy. Uh, like I said, there's one exception on We Need the Rain. There was a song that we just didn't get right. Like something about it just never quite felt right. And so I just couldn't, you know, do it. But I think in general, um, yeah, no, I don't think there's anything left over from, I don't remember. I'm trying to think now if we actually tried to do anything. In fact, something like uh, Poison Love was, was a total like last minute thing. Like that wasn't planned at all. I didn't have any intention going in of, of including that cover of, of Poison Love. Um, it just sort of arrived during the sessions as an idea that I needed to go pursue and we did it and it just fell into place. Um, so yeah, there, there wasn't anything extra. In fact, things were showing up at the last minute. You were talking uh, a little while ago about, about improving and getting better. Where for you... Um, have you improved the most, do you think, in the last five years? Like, where are you stronger now than ever before? Uh, I mean, I've worked pretty hard on singing, in basically, you know, because I, uh, singing is, is uh, there are certain musical things that kind of came easily to me that, it, that I felt like I had a grasp on and could grow with early, and singing was not one of them. It was really, really a long time before I got to a point where I felt like I was doing a good enough job as a singer and actually enjoying singing. So singing is, is, is maybe the main one. Um, from a writing standpoint, uh, I guess it's just gotten more, I feel like I'm more in touch with the source, I, I guess, which uh, I'm trying to find a better way to say that. I guess it, I just feel like I'm less self-consciously involved in the songwriting process. Like whatever editing parts I have, whatever um, conscientious ideas I have about decisions that want to be made, those are a little more peripheral and they sort of work their way into the process organically. I feel like I'm just letting songs arrive 
and instinctively following them through in a way that's much more resonant as I'm doing it. You know, I'm not stopping myself and saying like, oh, I'm after this idea. How do I do that? Um, I can do that later. I can fine tune it later in an editing stage, but in the kind of basic inspiration coming writing process, I feel like I'm going with that flow better and that I've absorbed a lot of ideas and, and strategies that, that work in that process that I don't have to think about. So, um, like a song like Duet for me is like that. Like that song just really feels natural to me. It does, I don't, when I listen to it, I don't hear anything that felt like I forced an idea or that I put some kind of structure onto it that didn't belong. Like it just felt like, yeah, this is, this is this complete experience and this is true to the inspirations that created it. Um, it's not a, an idea that I, you know, mapped out and then tried to figure out how to hammer together. It was just sort of like, this is how, not that, it, that it, it, there was a lot of editing on it, but it arrived feeling like this. And then the edits just sort of support that. So it's a much more immersive experience than it used to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Definitely. And I feel like the end results resonate with people more that way. Like it somehow that comes across, even if it's, you know, even if it's not a direct song speaking, you know, in a direct way to them. Like, I just feel like people are responding to the songs more immediately, more emotionally, because I think the songwriting itself is more organic, more attuned to that. Yeah. It's almost like you're not wrestling with it as it's happening. You're letting it happen. Then we can wrestle with it later. Right. Right. And, you know, and, and that's like a, a step, but that's like a process of getting to that point. You know, like it starts, you know, when you're a teenager, you're like, I'm going to write a T-Rex song, you know, and then eventually you're like, no, I'm writing my own song, but I want to do that little T-Rex thing. And then eventually, like, you've just absorbed so much T-Rex that it's either there or it isn't, depending on when it's necessary. You know, like it's not a conscientious, you're not choosing to, to do the T-Rex thing. It's just like, oh, if it turns out like T-Rex, then it must be. It must have meant to sound like T-Rex somehow. Right. How, how happy with you are in terms of where the band is going? Do you have, um, do you feel you're in a good place? Do you like where you are? Do you have goals? Um, you know, just in terms of a future philosophy, keep making records, keep getting them out there. Don't go away. Because <laughs> I know the climate for, for musicians is, is, you know, like Paul Simon was saying in a recent interview, um, you know, it's hard to make money now in a band. And he was saying, God, I got so lucky I made music when I did. Um, because it's it's difficult. So what are your what are your goals and what are the, the aspirations for the Blackbirds? Uh, it, yeah, it, it is such an abysmal time to be an independent musician. Uh, it really is, and it's it's become it's become a strategy as much for keeping myself personally sane as it is for anything band or artistic oriented. It's just focusing on being good and, and having fun being good. Um, you know, like I, I can get pretty hung up on all the sort of businessy end of things that I, you know, wish I'd been smarter about or had pursued or had better luck with, um, but in terms of like what I can control, you know, it's I can control, you know, creating, being creative, 
the control trying to get better at it. Um, and there's, you know, keeping a band together, um, and, not, and we're not a touring band necessarily, so that is a little bit easier. Um, but, you know, that's a skill, and that's a something I take seriously because I, I really like where the band is, and I like the people in it, and, and they contribute so much to making it, you know, better than I would on my own, obviously. Um, so in a way, I just try to keep my focus and not get too hung up on, you know, like, oh, how do I reach more people? I mean, I work on that, but I don't let that be a guide or, um, yeah, it's just, it's so hard to think about the industry if you don't have other people in your camp, if you don't have a label or management or something like that, you know, I think you can get really hung up on that. And I, I don't really want to, I really want to focus on, you know, just being as good as we can be and getting it out and, you know, doing what we can, but being lucky, you know, if people love it, <laughs> I don't know. It's hard. It's, it's, I guess I think of it more now, um, separate entirely from the industry and more like if I were uh, a writer or um, a painter who wasn't necessarily trying to take on, you know, the literary world or the, the art world, but was just really driven to, you know, create a body of work and do it as well as they could. For your
Don't you love that guy? What a smart guy. What a cool guy. What a great band. The Bye Bye Blackbirds. Go to their website, byebyeblackbirds.com, and uh, buy their music, for God's sakes. Support support the band. Support the artist. It's, uh, it's a tough time out there for musicians and writers and uh, artists. And uh, Lindsay Lohan, is she doing okay? It's probably tough for her now, too. It's tough for everybody. But uh, if you can, buy the music, support the artist, and who knows, maybe they'll come to your town. And uh, eat dinner at your house if you, uh, if you give them enough money. <laughs> I suppose they would do that. Hey, thanks for listening to the program. This has been Stereo Embers, the podcast. I'm Alex Green, and uh, we will be back next week. Got some big guests lined up in the coming weeks. Mark Bryan of Hootie and the Blowfish. Louise Goffin, that's Carol King's daughter. She'll be uh, stopping by to have a chat with us. Who else? Who else do we have? Hannah? My intern Hannah is looking at the list, and she's shaking her head. We can't reveal any more. Those are two big names, though. I'm happy to have shared those with you, and I'm happy to have shared this hour with you. Thank you, as always, for listening to the show. If you uh, have some free time and you're feeling generous, go to iTunes. Give us a comment. We read them. We go there late at night, and we go, who likes us and who doesn't? That way we know who to come after. (laughs) Take that, Yelp Nation. Uh, All right, I'm Alex Green. Thank you again for listening, and I will see you next week on Stereo Embers, the podcast.